Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hey, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Almost Here, Round the Corner Technology. And today I've got an interesting interview coming. Uh, Colin Cantrell, the creator of Nexus uh, Cryptocurrency, or Nexus Coin. How you doing, Colin? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first question, just to be real direct, I mean, there's like probably a thousand cryptocurrencies now. Why does the world need another one? Like, why did you decide to spend all this time and effort making a new coin? Well, because, I mean, as we've seen, like, as Bitcoin has grown, sometimes some of the limitations of it have been demonstrated. Like, even today, you look, and we've got 60,000, 70,000 transaction backlogs, which, I mean, it's been even pretty hard for me to send Bitcoin today. The fee market's going up. And, you know, so, I mean, I looked at this a lot. And, I mean, we started it out as a kind of coin shield where we were working on eliminating some of these scams because a lot of these pump and dump coins they kind of just come and they pump and they dump, and then it really destroys a lot of the morale in the community, especially in the Bitcoin communities. Like, I mean, I see this kind of like taking some of that momentum and steam away from Bitcoin. And then, I mean, when there's so many people scammed from these coins like Paycoin and other ones, it kind of generates a negative image in the industry. And so we want to do something to help improve it. And that's when the development in Nexus started. And so after a period of time, I spent close to like nine, ten months developing it, just locked myself in a room, essentially, and just let the code eat me alive. And from there, you know, I learned how to work it and change, you know, started with difficulty algorithms and then, oh, let's make a new prime number algorithm. And, oh, wait, let's use multiple mining channels because that actually secures the network and balances kind of the power, I guess, the concentration of power in different types of hardware. And uh, okay. so basically it was... In, in a respect to Bitcoin of, you know, learning from some of the code that Satoshi wrote and learning the way he thought and kind of taking forward some of that philosophy to reignite it in the industry and also produce new technology that can be implemented in Bitcoin as well. And from that, it, we're kind of proving it in a sense. Like, you know, I mean, Bitcoin changing the protocol is a very high cost and it's very difficult to change a protocol as well. And I mean, even segregated witness, we've tested it on testnet, but when you put it out in the wild, you get, you know, people trying to hack it and abuse it and beat it. And that really kind of creates a robustness. And you, you find certain bugs that may cause problems. And so kind of battle-hardening it. And then eventually to send some pull requests to Bitcoin, help Bitcoin, and kind of producing value back into the industry and showing that, like, alternative currencies can have a benefit as far as, like, innovating in the space and producing, I guess, more for the industry to help expand the industry rather than just, taking Bitcoiners and saying, hey, this is going to be the new Bitcoin, you missed the boat. Well, here you go. We're going to hype this and then blah, blah, blah. And so it's just, okay. we got to produce valuable technology into the world to kind of help cryptocurrencies go to the next level. Well, very good. How come, um, why did you create a whole new coin? Why not create layers on top of the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum or something? Why, why go to this extent and create a whole new thing? 
because there's a lot of things that, you know, I mean, you can't really, you can do some layers on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, but then you're limited by the Bitcoin blockchain. So, like, if there was a layer on the Bitcoin blockchain right now, for instance, we would kind of be at a slight detriment. And so it's also the secondary is, like, when you have a separate blockchain, it's got a slightly different security model. You can prove that security model and how it works. This is kind of Bitcoin has proven its security over its years of growth. So building a new blockchain helps us innovate. Like, one of the things is, you know, upgraded cryptography and 571-bit private keys, which, I mean, to put it in layman's terms, that's just, like, a, a lot stronger of a lockbox than it's, you know, in light of quantum computing and everything like that. So it's, you know, there's certain things you can do on top of it, like I've seen the counterparty protocol and other ones, but this is, allows us to build a completely new architecture, starting with the blockchain and expanding it out and building the lower levels of it, like even database systems and the protocol, network programming that is going to help it scale that, you know what I mean, when you right. innovate it on a separate blockchain, it can be used with the facts of Bitcoin. Makes sense. All right, so when did you uh, start this? When did Nexus first come to life where it could be uh, publicly bought and sold? Well, so the development of it started in, I believe it was April of 2014. That's when I started with, uh, you know, the first four. I utilized the PeerCoin Source 063 because we were going to do uh, multiple money channels with Coupa State. And uh, it just grew from there, and we launched the network on September 23rd, 2014, and then uh, just launched each, I guess you could call it a block production channel thereafter. So we launched the GPU channel, which is the hashing channel, one month later, and then about six months later, I launched a proof-of-stake channel, but I actually kind of developed a new proof-of-stake system on top, you know, instead of utilizing pure coins, because the more I went through the pure coin code, I saw that there was some exploitable holes in it, and it drew me to just say, well, I might as well develop a protocol and see some of the strengths and weaknesses of PeerCoin's proof of stake and innovate on top of that and create new, fresh code that can be utilized further in the industry. Hmm. Wow. Well, let's, all right, so you're talking about all these features, throwing them out like rapid fire. Um, you know, let's break it down a little bit. Tell me, like, the top three or five uh, features of Bitcoin that, just drove you nuts and what you did and how your implementation is different and better. Okay, so, I mean, one of them was the block reward having. It kind of stresses the market. So I developed, a, and also the block time, too, because that can be inconsistent, which, you know, I mean, you'll see some Bitcoin blocks are five, some are 15 minutes, and that kind of stresses the market. It's, it inflates, it deflates, whatever. I mean, from its target now, it's always going to have a fixed supply, but it's very difficult to predict what the supply is going to be at a certain time. And also with the block reward having every time it has, I mean, I've been a miner when I started in the industry and I've lost half of my profits when a block reward has. And so that was one of those is I built a reserve system that locks the production to a time. And then the mining reward comes out of those reserves and that follows kind of an exponential decay curve, which just basically means instead of a sharp jump every four years with Nexus, it's kind of a slow decay. It eventually decays to zero. So, that kind of allows a smooth, gradual movement in the distribution. And then another one of them was the mining controlling a lot of the network where, you know, China pretty much controls 70% of the hash rate, which can create some centralization issues. So I decided to uh, create the multiple mining channels and the multiple block production channels that kind of allow 
I guess you could say you can do uh, prime number searching and you can do hashing and then you can do proof of stake and all of them reinforce each other. So, I mean, any block can be one of the three channels, the next block, but, you know, they, if the previous block is created from the same channel then and another block is facing that, then that block that was created from the previous channel will actually be orphaned, which allows it to kind of secure themselves so that in order to 51% attack, you'd have to have control over the three different ways to produce blocks, which really minimizes the centralization that miners could have. And then another one is usable huh. work. So Bitcoin uses SHA-2, and it's just hash cash proof of work with 256-bit output length. And I developed a prime number searching algorithm. It's completely new. It's different from RyeCoin and PrimeCoin. It's actually searching for dense prime clusters. And uh, it's basically, I mean, so we're doing all this work. We have this giant supercomputer. A lot of people are like, well, Bitcoin requires this much power to produce this many transactions. And it's inefficient and blah, blah, blah. And in some respects, you know, it's inefficient as far as, like, power consumption, but then it's efficient as far as security. So it's a very good security model. So why not take that and then, well, let's produce value. So you've got a giant supercomputer. Why not calculate prime numbers? And that will prove some of these theorems or at least give number theorists better ideas to model their equations in number theory. And then another hmm. one is the quantum security. So quantum computers were kind of rumored to be coming out when I was uh, – creating it. And I was thinking, well, okay, so I look at this thing called Grover's algorithm and it says, okay, well, the security of these keys, especially ECC keys, which are elliptical curve cryptography keys like Bitcoin uses, those can be weakened significantly with a quantum computer just by the nature of how they compute comparatively to conventional computers. So I developed an upgraded hashing and upgraded keys. So our block hashes are 1024 bits, which means they're about four times the length of the Bitcoin block hash. And then our transaction hashes are about twice the length. And then I got rid of the, it had a, a hashing algorithm which generates a 160-bit key for your public key or your actual address. And then that's encoded in base 58, which just is, you know, basically base 64 without a certain few letters that you could confuse like O's and zeros. That's how to, how Bitcoin does it. So I created a, a Skyn and Tekic algorithm that's 256-bit for the addresses, same with the transaction hashes and the block hashes. So what that allows it to do is basically it's SHA-3 functions. So they have, and using two of the algorithms, it kind of, they reinforce each other. So if there's, you know, insecurities found in one of them, it's not going to decimate the security model. It's because each one of them reinforces each other. And then the upgraded cryptographic length actually makes us, a lot more resilient to quantum computers, it's basically the highest grade or highest bit outputs that I could put into any sort of program that was available, which, you know, I did because it's like, well, hey, if it's there, we might as well use it because upgrading the hashing once you have ASIC miners, like, it's, it's going to be, you know, really detrimental to a network. And then the second one is the private keys. I went to 571-bit instead of 256-bit so that that kind of, that's the highest bit output you can have to it, so that, you know, we can plow into the future as far as possible with the minimal risk of quantum computers. And, of course, a lot of it's still speculative. Google has the D-Wave and all these other components. But, you know, so there's right. not, there's these theoretical algorithms that are developed by mathematicians. But even in that, like, it's definitely good to prepare for the future and look ahead and say, well, you know, this is going to be, Look, if it's going to be a usable currency for 100 years, 200 years, we might as well make it as secure as we possibly can. And I think Satoshi, he built Bitcoin without 
I think, really thinking it was going to blow up. It was just kind of an experiment. He's just one of those innovators that could just build stuff, and they enjoy building stuff, and he did it, and he did it very, very well. But now we're looking and seeing how that experiment has grown and exploded, and there's certain implications, like that Bitcoin is going to plow really far into the future. So looking at that, we should be prepared ahead of time for these possible security flaws rather than just, you know, I mean, considering it good enough for now and saying, well, we'll deal with it and we deal with it. You know, it's better to deal with it while you're smaller rather than when you're a lot bigger because, I mean, doing an update on a distributed peer-to-peer network is, uh, it's a little bit arduous, I could say, especially getting everybody to update, everybody knowing you've got different people with time zones. And, you know, so the bigger the network huh. is, the harder it is to upgrade it. And that's kind of what we're seeing with Bitcoin with segregated witness. I mean, it's, if I recall correctly, been a month or two that it's been kind of trying to get it going. Like in the, it's still at, I think, 25% adoption, which, you know, I mean, it's getting there, but question is, is it going so, to get there? Are the Chinese going to adopt it or not? Man, i got to ask you a question. I mean, you spouted out so much knowledge. The only reason I can even begin to understand it is I've done, you know, 40 different interviews. Um, how the hell do you know all this stuff, and how did you program all this stuff in, like, a 10-month time span? Like, Well, like I said, I mean, 10, 12 hours a day in your room locked in without any social contact does wonders for a person as far as creating things. But then, like, you know, when you try to go back out into society, you got a little bit of catching up to do with, like, all right, this is how to act. So, I mean, it's that, but it's also I've got an extensive background in computer programming. I've been doing it since I was 12. So, And one of the ways I taught myself how to program. So how I used to teach myself, especially, you know, in my younger days, is I'd read other people's code, and I'd be like, Oh, that's mm. how they did it. Because when you read somebody's code, you see how they think. It's kind of like a psychological fingerprint. Everybody codes differently. That's how I'll actually college professors catch cheaters. Because everybody's code, even if you change the variable names, has a certain logic to it. People can right. solve a problem in a million different ways because programming languages are so powerful. So mm. I kind of I like to say that I learned from Satoshi, not in person, but just by reading his code, that's why I started with an older code base because it still had a lot of his original code, and you can still see some of the comments like, oh, yeah, implement NTP at this point with his network time protocol to synchronize the clocks. And I was like, hmm, I looked into NTP, and I'm like, ooh, this has some amplification attack factor as well. Why don't I build a new time-seeking protocol? And then, you know, it just it keeps going from there. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's help Satoshi finish what he never finished because, you know, I mean, I, I respect the roots that we came from, and none of us would be here without Satoshi's knowledge, and that knowledge is still right. in the code if you know how to find it. Well, I think most people wouldn't do what you did. They would maybe, you know, build their own stuff and not look at the history, and they certainly wouldn't look at NTP protocols and say, oh, I'll redo that, and oh, the mining, I'll redo that. And I'll, I mean, <laughs> you went crazy and they redid everything, which is, you know, a real testament to you. That's great. But, um, thank you. You know, yeah, as a programmer, though, I've heard from many programmers, you know what, I'm not a cryptographer. And everyone seems to be afraid of that side of it. It seems like incredibly complex. So, how did you learn the cryptography part of it in addition to the programming? I guess I in a very blunt way, letting it kick my ass and <laughs> hurt my head long enough for me to, like, figure it out, you know, and never giving up. It's just, I mean, sometimes like programmers, I mean, it depends on how they were taught, but sometimes when 
we go to college and we're taught certain ways, like it's harder for us to break out of that mold of saying, oh, I had a teacher teach me. So now this is therefore like what I know. And it's, it's difficult to break into that because it feels intimidating. But if you just dive in and tackle it and let it eat you alive, you'll eventually get strong enough to figure it out. And when you figure it out, I mean, the level of accomplishment is just like, I did it, and I didn't give up. And that's just an amazing feeling, let alone knowing, like, the implications of what it can do for the world. Huh. So what do you see uh, the role of Nexus becoming? You know, what is it now, and what do you think it's going to become in the next year or two or three years? What's your goal I mean, for it? In development or as far as market or adoption, like what, what specific area are you speaking about? Yeah, adoption, market, what, what need do you see it fulfilling? Do you see it taking the place of Bitcoin? Do you see it just helping all cryptocurrencies that are more widely adopted? Like, is there any particular um, outcome that you want for it or you're just like, hey, I created this thing, let's see where it goes? Well, I mean, I really what I'd like to see is that seeing that it helps, you know, I mean, whether it be helping people in certain countries that don't have ASIC miners be able to mine and I mean, people in Venezuela that, you know, have a hard time even getting food or, you know, other places where, you know, they don't, they're, they're kind of under an economic slavery. I, I'd want to see it help people, but also be kind of helping the industry as well. Like, I mean, we don't really, like in the Nexus community, we're not really about competing with Bitcoin. That's something that a lot of alternative currencies do sometimes, but that's, I don't think the appropriate way to do it because we should be helping Bitcoin along. I'd want to see it benefit Bitcoin as well, whether it's in the market or whether it's in technology or anything else. Because, I mean, Bitcoins are original and, you know, cooperation can create such a more bountiful environment. So by focusing our intent on that of cooperating with people, cooperating with other currencies, Bitcoin, making each other stronger together, that kind of helps the industry as a whole, and then, I mean, cooperating with other countries, breaking down the illusion of borders and language, and, I mean, rich and poor. It's just, like, helping the world in some respects. And now the market is the market. The market does what it does. I mean, it could go up, it could go down, but the real thing that I want to see it do is, like, be able to help the world kind of move forward and get away from some of these currencies right now that we know, like fiat, that are kind of like the thumb holding us down. So, mm. you know, if that can benefit Bitcoin too, that's amazing. But, you know, if Bitcoin doesn't want to take it, then, I mean, we can't force them. But we're definitely open to that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What if Bitcoin doesn't, you know, there, I mean, there's so much politics going on now, which is kind of ironic <laughs> based on the fact that Bitcoin was created to, uh, you know, to get us away from politics and all that. It, yeah. But it's now become a toll you know, it's, it's you know, crazy. You know, what if Bitcoin core devs and, you know, none of them listen to you? What do you think the role of Nexus will be then? I mean, the role of Nexus, like I said, then it's helping the people that want it to help them. I mean, like okay. I said, people that choose to adopt it, people that choose to trade it, people that choose to mine it. You know, I mean, there's so many other aspects that, you know, I mean, helping Bitcoin is one of them. And that's, that's a stance that we like to take just to make sure that, like, it's clear to the community that we're, we're here to benefit the industry. Now, benefiting the industry means making a new market, great. If it means building technology, great. If it means helping Bitcoin with their technology, great too, you know? It's just the bottom line is just like helping the world become more than it is. And part of that, like you mentioned, the politics is, you know, I mean, 
we can build any decentralized system with computers. We can have all the most amazing cryptography in the world. We can have the most advanced technology in the world. But if we don't start thinking a little differently, then decentralization is going to decay into centralization. We need to change our thought processes. And that's going to help things move forward for the world as well as for cryptocurrencies. And politics is just something that doesn't necessarily benefit anything. It's just more of the same hierarchical centralization power. And, you know, that's maybe an example that we're seeing with Bitcoin. And then that leads us to be able to conclude, well, how are we going to solve that issue? Like, let's look at these problems that, you know, are harming Bitcoin and other currencies. And let's take these problems and create solutions for them. Okay. Well, we covered um, some of the features of Nexus. Tell me a few more features that, you know, when you told them to people, they were like, what the, you know, they were just blown away by them. Like, what, do you, what, do you, what are your favorite features, and what are the ones that you've told people about that they were just, like, floored by, that they're impressed by? I mean, it's really, honestly, I couldn't really generically say that. Everybody's got their own. Like, I had some people say, like, that was ballsy to upgrade the keys because that's no easy feat. And then other people say, I love the 1024 that passes. Other people say, I love the prime numbers. Other people say, I love that you went to SHA-3. Other people say, oh, we love that your clocks are synchronized to a second. Other people say, I love that you built a new database from scratch, you know, for blockchain specifically. But for me, my favorite, it's definitely the lower-level database and the lower-level protocol, which are really, they've been really fun to build. And it's also really cool to see the results and how much they can speed up and the potential of them because Bitcoin is a distributed database and it's using LevelDB and BerkeleyDB right now, I believe. And so I noticed like Nexus was really slow. I mean, we had about, we have like 1.4 million blocks and it has to load all of those blocks in the memory or the index of them anyway, which is C block index. And that took about 15, 20 minutes for our wallet to load. And so I was like, I got to do something about this. And I already kind of built a database for the pools just, you know, to see, hey, can I do this? And I did it. And I was like, okay, this is cool. So finally to the version I got right now, it ended up reducing the load time from 15 minutes down to uh, 45 to 50 seconds. And so the implications of that allows us, okay, cool. Now we have a new kind of database architecture that we can start growing. And when I really started figuring out like the, capabilities of it with I have a data chain and a key chain with I guess dynamic sectors and then the key chain is kind of like like a blockchain but your keys are linked to each other to correlate to a different sector where data is stored. Now this key chain can become a decentralized chain like the blockchain where people can basically host different parts of the blockchain and break the network apart in a database that automatically scales itself and automatically distributes itself to have like a database designed for a blockchain. And that's going to be something really necessary because, I mean, when we're doing really large transaction volumes, the blockchain is going to get bigger and bigger, and then it's going to centralize it further because then you need super hardware in order to even run a Bitcoin full node. So when the lower-level database is complete in its final form, it's going to be capable of you'll be able to load your wallet the first time, and they'll say, how much disk space do you want to service for the network? And you say, oh, two gigs. And then, now if you've got 1,000 nodes, 2 gigs, now you can store a 2 terabyte a two terabyte blockchain on 2 gigs on each computer. Now, let's say you say, hey, I'll service 10 gigs. Hey, I really like this. Well, now we've got 10 terabytes, and so on and so forth. And so that allows kind of the network to scale in a way that is not going to require every single node to hold the whole blockchain. Now, the problem with that, the weakness, I guess, could be the attack factor is, okay, well, 
if I am Linode and I say I'm storing two gigs, I can say, oh, I'm going to give false bluff. But that's where the trust system comes in, which I built into the, the Nexus proof of stake model, which you have to, one of the philosophies is not everybody has money, but everybody has time. And so you okay. level the playing field by giving resources to people that already have that resource. People in third world countries can put time into the network and they build the trust up. And that takes three to four months and over a year to get their interest rate up because the interest rate goes from half a percent to 3% over a period of one year. And so you get paid more for your trust from the network, you're processing transactions, and then you can have your trust key, which then will sign and verify the data so that the cost of an attack is in time. And time is really, in my opinion, one of the most expensive commodities we can not buy. <laughs> like, right, it's right. gone, it's gone. So if you have to spend significant amounts of time, the cost of that could be significant to you, let alone you're going to have to run your node that long. You're going to have to have the hardware to run that long. You're going to have to have the coins to stake them in your wallet to develop that trust. So that kind of is one way that it's going to be integrated into the lower-level database where it can basically you make requests to different nodes for, like, different pieces of the blockchain, and then you can choose what one you want it from, or you can make sure they all agree, and then you can say, okay, well, I checked eight nodes on this, you know, let's say block, and they give me the same block, and they all have decent trust. Okay, so now I know it's it. Now if you have somebody trying to attack, oh, well, seven of the nodes agree on this block, but one doesn't, and this, you know, eighth node that doesn't agree has a lower trust than these guys. Okay, therefore I know, like, that's probably not somebody that I want to trust to give me valid data because attackers can try to give invalid data to manipulate the chain. Gotcha. Okay. Um, one thing that uh, I read about or heard from you offline you know, before this conversation was um, you talked about truly decentralizing the network, so not just relying on nodes scattered all over the world, uh, you talked about, I think, setting up an alternative system by launching cube satellites. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, one, there's many aspects to decentralization that are going to take us forward to make these types of new systems successful. The first one I already mentioned, which was, you know, we have to have the proper thought processes. We have to kind of be decentralization in a sense. And then the secondary one is you've got to have a software that's mathematically secure and capable of servicing the needs of the world, of whatever. And then the third one is, well, we need our own hardware. Right now we're running on the hardware that's developed by the government that we're trying to disrupt. And so, yeah, we're going to disrupt them, but, you know, let's say they decide to cut cables or threaten the Internet's going to fall down or filter out ports or start, you know, decoding the Bitcoin protocol and saying, oh, if we know that we're getting a Bitcoin message through this router, then we're going to block it. And that can cause serious, I mean, reductions in the decentralization. The CubeSats kind of are going to allow us to have an immutable storage on the hardware levels. And also, once that comes to full fruition, which it's a few phases in the making, that will, I mean, essentially allow us to have our own kind of communication system from the air that really there is no law in space. There's no anything. So, I mean, let's say countries say, oh, this is, well, it's not illegal to have a blockchain in space, even if they want to try to make it that, even if they want to try to attack us. We can have our own immutable system that eventually, you know, I mean, as it gets formed fully, you'll be able to communicate with that from normal devices that you can buy from ground stations, which will allow us our own kind of mesh routing network with low Earth orbit that kind of frees us further. Then we don't have to deal with the censorship of the Internet or 
let's say, ICANN getting moving overseas. Who knows what's going to happen next? I mean, the Internet has grown bountifully, but if we're still running on the hardware of the powers that kind of create some of these systems that are not necessarily in our full benefit, then, you know, I mean, we're at their whim. But if we have our own hardware, then that frees us that much more. Can you, can you just give, like, a real brief description of, I don't know if anyone's heard of cube satellites. What are they? So think of them like small disposable satellites that last maybe five years. They cost, like, 10000 a piece. And I mean, depending on the cube sat, they're anywhere from, like, five to six inches by five to six inches. Now, they're a small microsatellite because, I mean, as we know, computers are, I mean, getting really, really small. So satellite technology, a lot of us, believe that they have to be these giant, giant satellites, and, and that's not necessarily true. The cost of putting up big satellites is also the cost of how much money you have or how connected to the world you are. Oh, yeah, we want to get this satellite on a SpaceX rocket, but SpaceX can't even launch rockets that quickly because they've got such large rockets, so they can only do a number of launches per year. So, cube satellites are basically the future of space. They're making the cost of space low and kind of like Apple is for, you know, versus IBM. Like Apple took the computer and put it into everybody's hands. And that's, you know, why that company has grown so significantly because it made it low enough of a cost to allow people to be able to do that. I mean, hey, we can put up a CubeSat and with a camera on it and have our own live view of the Earth. We can take our own pictures of the surface. We don't have to be censored by Google or be out of the loop because the only one that has it is government. So it's kind of mm -hmm. taking that and putting it in the people's hands. And that's where Vector Space Systems is coming in. They started a competing company with SpaceX because my father co-founded SpaceX. So he started, he had a lot of knowledge in the aerospace industry. So we started this rocket company to do just that, is launch CubeSat. And that's where we've kind of been developing this idea together. Quick question, how many uh, CubeSats would be necessary to cover the entire Earth and I to have a network that, where you... I couldn't tell you that just yet. I mean, I'd have to sit down and really run the calculations. I mean, I'd guess probably numbering in the thousands, a few thousands, something of the sort. But, I mean, it also just depends on your ground station locations, everything like that. But, I mean, for a full-fledged mesh network, yeah, you're going to need to have layers of the network. And, I mean, you can't run it to geosync. Geosync means that is in the same place on Earth because it's so proud because then you have latency issues. So, I mean, that's my best guess. Now, I couldn't tell you that that's, that's exactly at. Well, we finally found something you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a lot of things, my friend. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. I know a lot um, about some things and some things, you know, I'm a little limited on the knowledge. But, you know, I mean, no problem. generally because I haven't looked into it or assessed it or calculated it because it's just something that's like a lower priority in what I'm doing right now. Right, right, gotcha. Um, okay, so you programmed all this stuff. You know, you, it's amazing all the stuff you did. Now, how about uh, getting adoption of Nexus? Like, what's the market cap? Where can you get a wallet? You know, what's what's the infrastructure that you've made so far for Nexus? And what? So it's uh, nexusearth.com is our website. That's where you can generally find the wallets. There's wallets for Linux, uh, OS X, and Windows. And then, um, you know, we have, we're traded on a couple of exchanges right now. It's uh, Bittrex and Cryptopia. Our market cap, let's see, checking it right now, it's at about $4.8 and we're at about 10.5 cents. 
so, I mean, as far as, like, how the adoption has grown, it's been very organic. If you look at the chart, we were very very unknown for a long time, kind of like developing it in our own little bubble on Bitcoin Talk, where, you know, a few people would get it, a few people would get in, and then they'd start to do research and figure it out, and they'd be like, wow. You know, I mean, it's kind of been like a puzzle you got to put together. I know when you probably did some research, you were like, okay, i got to find this here and that here, and, like, put right. these pieces together. Some of it's buried and forums, some of it's there. And so that's something we're starting to get to now. And we're like, all right, well, let's, let's get ourselves some, you know, really concrete, simple ways to explain all these different things. And there's just so much that's been done. And I've been more concentrated on building the technology than like, oh, yeah, let's get huge so fast. Because, I mean, Bitcoin grew from nothing. It grew from zero. Now, some of these yeah. alternative currencies, they start 5 million market cap, 10 million. And then, I mean, you see that big pump, and then it's just a downward trend from there. And yeah. so we started from zero, too. We started, I mean, our market cap the first day was zero. <laughs> we weren't even exchanged on exchanges for three months because most exchanges couldn't figure out how to add it because there was some differences, you know, as far as the upgraded hashes and the addresses that they couldn't figure out how to get. So we traded on that for a while, and then, I mean, Bittrex even had to do some updates to their whole system to get Nexus to work on it. So that kind of like, hmm. I mean, I call that like, I think it was kind of good in some respects because it kind of grew like Bitcoin grew. It started with a small community, almost like the mailing list, and a few people came in and started helping, pitch ideas, and they're like, hey, you know, you should make new algorithm. I'm like, hey, that's a good idea. And so I started playing around, and I think I was playing with uh, Hailstone series was the first one. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Wait, I can actually do this. And I started figuring out prime numbers. You know, it's just like it's, it's an organic community, and it's a vibrant community too. Everybody's just really happy to be here. Everybody gets along. Everybody helps one another. and We're all here to help each other up and work together for a greater good. And, you know, some people come okay. in, they want to make money, but what's cool about it is, like, they come in and they just want to make their profits, and the more they stick around, they start hearing some of our philosophies and seeing what we're doing and just feeling some of that energy, and they, they start saying, like, hey, you know what? And they start learning, and they start saying, wow, this is actually making me happier as a person because I'm learning things that make me happier. Wow. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of how it's grown. It's just, I mean, the last little rise we've had, I think it started at the new year. I mean, I was on the radio for a little bit and, you know, I mean, there's a couple other things that kind of started, but it just started the snowball. I mean, like an organic snowball, just kind of like Bitcoin was when it kind of had its huge rise too. I mean, we're not anywhere close to (laughs) the rise of this had, but I mean, it's, it's growing slowly, kind of like that. And so that's something I saw. I was like, well, Bitcoin is what it is because it grew right. Just like the oak tree right. grows slowly, it makes the strongest wood. Now, pine trees grow so fast. And so, yeah, they can get really tall, but they'll blow over because their roots aren't very strong or their wood's not very strong. So that's kind of how it's grown. Well, Bitcoin, I guess, started with a pizza. So yeah, we've had uh, auspicious beginnings, too. Yeah, I am. That's that's what's so cool. It's like you know, I mean, every great thing really has very very humble beginnings, and that's kind of where we come from. It's it's really cool. You get really excited. Oh, the market cap's twenty thousand. Oh, we just hit fifty thousand. We're all excited, and it's just, mm. it's really cool to see how it's growing right now, especially since some of these people that have been in the community since day one, like you know, sometimes it was more difficult than other times when like the price was low and. We're all working, and people are like, hey, we haven't made much money yet. I'm like, you know, I'm doing yeah. everything I can. And I even had to get a day job to keep funding the development and working on it. And so now, you know, I mean, it's just it's cool to see, like, these people are getting their returns. They're making money. 
other people are getting involved, people are becoming more happy, and, you know, people in cool. Venezuela are mining to help eat and things like that. It's really beautiful to see it happen. All right, well, two things. Um, you talked about the community. Where do people get involved in the community? Like, is it on Slack? Is it in yeah, a forum? Slack like, where, where is it? place right now. The Slack is extremely active, so that's where most of the stuff goes down. Now, we usually take stuff from Slack to make announcements because that's where we do most of the talking. So if you go to nexusearth.com and then do a colon and do 3000, 3000, so that's port 3000, that'll take you to a Slack auto-invite link. And that you just put in your email address and it'll let you in. And then you join into the general channel. I think I, think I said there's 850 people in it right now. And we have a lot of cool things. We have like a trading channel for traders to learn from each other and different things like that and mining channel and forums and the general channel and everything like that. Do you go to nexusearth.com colon, colon 3000? Colon 3000. Okay. All right, got that. Um, yep. Just a couple more questions. I know there's tons more to talk about. Uh, mining. So you said there's three different ways to mine, right? CPU, GPU, and ASIC, or am I mistaken? No, okay, so there's three different block production. So the, the proof of stake, the Nexus proof of stake is the third one. But So there's a CPU-only algorithm, which is the prime number algorithm, which, I mean, eventually, eventually, GPU miners will figure out how to build a miner for it, but there's no real reason for it right now because the GPU channel exists and they can get more Nexus there. So there's the prime channel and the hashing channel and then the Nexus proof of stake channel. And so the way I see it, eventually ASICs are going to be coming in and they're going to be made. So the way I see the, the hashing channel turning into is that's going to start to transition to FPGAs and then the ASICs. And then the GPU miners are going to have a haven on the CPU channel, then the prime channel, and then they'll be able to still mine. So it kind of like, allows a natural progression of technology, but then it also gives places for some of those miners to still keep mining when some of the hardware may have gone a little bit obsolete. So is um, is mining profitable right now, or who's mining? Like big concerns or just individuals? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, there's, the difficulty is very, very high right now. So, I mean, there's a lot of people mining, but what's really cool about it is a lot of people mine alternative currencies because they just want to have the most profitable and sell it for Bitcoin, right? Now, a lot of these miners are mining it for Nexus because they want Nexus, and they know, like, in the long term that it's going to pay off significantly. So there's actually quite a few miners, and, I mean, I think it's probably, like, borderline profitable. No, I really couldn't say. I haven't really gotten onto the mining for a while because I, mean, I, I haven't been able to mine for a long time because I don't have any really significant hardware. And uh, the difficulty has just been going up really significantly lately. So, I mean, you could ask some of the miners on the mining channel or anybody that comes in, they'll be able to tell you the profitability of it. Okay. All right. Um, any other features or joint ventures or big things coming for 2017 for Nexus that you're working on? Yeah, so we're working on, uh, you know, the partnership with Vector Space Systems. That's still not official yet, so I don't want to say that's going to happen. But, you know, once it's official, we'll definitely announce that. But it's looking really, really good. And then there's uh, the lower-level library. So it'll be the lower-level protocol, the lower-level database, low-level encryption, things like that. So that basically is kind of a template toolkit for people to develop more efficient systems with requiring less hardware. There's a decentralized checkpointing system. So... What that basically does is it 
allows the node to agree on certain checkpoints every hour instead of having to hard code them in the source so that the chain can't be overwritten before that checkpoint. And then I already got into the precise distribution, which was uh, designed kind of to, I mean, you can know if you put in a Unix timestamp from a year from now and say how much Nexus is going to be here, you'll have a very good idea of exactly what it is as far as what's going to be mined. Now, as far as flood inflation with the proof of stake, you know, that's going to vary slightly, but you have an exact idea of how much is being produced per day, which I think, I mean, for any investor or miner, that's good to know. That's good to know how much money is coming into the industry, how much is the price possibly going to be reduced by the new supply or, you know, I mean, vice versa. And now there's a, the staking system, which actually I was talking about with the trust. So that allows you to have kind of a, a decentralized trust model that mathematically validates certain behavioral patterns of people that shows, like, who's more trustworthy or not. So that, you know, I mean, Bitcoin was initially designed to be trustless, but it's really reducing its ability to be trustless. You don't know what nodes are trusted. You don't know whatever. So it's kind of a mathematical reference point for the reputation of each node so you can know what ones are going to be the best to connect to. Now, I developed new difficulty algorithms that retarget every block and use kind of a weighted average. And uh, a bunch of other things, too, that kind of give a very smooth difficulty adjustment, but also keep the block times very regular. Like, they keep them as consistent as they possibly can be because hashing and mining is slightly random still. So it kind of it helps to keep the network as consistent as possible. And then... What is, what's the block time right now? The block time, it averages out at about 60 to 70 seconds. Now... Oh, Each wow. of the channels is set, you know, for about 150 seconds, about. So, you know, then the Nexus proof of stake channel is set for about 60 to 70 seconds. So, I mean, they all kind of average down to about 50 or 60 seconds. Huh. And um, if someone mines, is there a reward, you know, similar to like Dash has for masternodes? Um, so, no, there's no masternodes. I don't really... Personally, I don't agree with the idea of a, a master node as far as, like, the masters of the network. I generally like the idea of, like, okay, instead of earning your reputation or your your money from paying a bunch of money, which anybody can do to attack a network, you require time. So you get your interest rate from developing your trust. And there's also a decentralized development fund so that we don't need any foundations where there's 13 developer keys that get a small deposit off of the mining reward every time there's a new block, which goes into them to help create self-funding developer keys, which also allows the developer keys to sign binaries to prove that the developer released that binary, which is very useful. Other things are it allows them to cast a vote between each other. Same with the trust keys, the trust keys for the each of the miners, which the minor trust keys aren't done yet. It's only the, the Nexus proof of stake trust keys, but that kind of allows us to create kind of decentralized voting groups for like if we ever have a block size debate, then we'll say, okay, well, the developers have their opinion and the trustees have their opinion and the ambassadors have their other opinion. So the ambassador keys are, they get a slightly larger amount that goes into, it's kind of a decentralized trust fund. And that's going to be used for, how can I say it? Like they're going to be able to be replaced very easy if people decide they want to replace a certain ambassador or a company that's an ambassador. But there's a lot of different things in the world that, could be improved through, you know, how should I say it, uh, having a stable currency and having some of the resources to do it. So, I mean, we look at the energy industry, we look at water purification, we look at our agriculture, you know, we look at our space and our hardware 
And, I mean, there's a lot of different things, but these keys can kind of help fund that and create a decentralized trust so that there's no need for any centralized foundation. There's no need to have a company that kind of gains overall. It allows everything to remain checked and balanced, in a, I, I guess, in a sense. So that kind of, as far as I see it, is one of the things that we need to do in a decentralized system, and that's one thing that, you know, you notice in the development of the United States of America it has kind of a checks and balances system. Now, we could argue whether or not that's working too well right now, but, you know, <laughs> right. if you, uh, you know, if you have those checks and balances that are mathematically validated, cryptography, mathematics has no mm. bias. So if people make a decision for, you know, let's say an ambassador, they want this type of technology released, or they want this satellite system, or they have this design or whatever, they can say, all right, well, we want you to do this. And they've cast the vote out and it's cryptographically secured on the chain where it says, this is what you have to do. Now, if they try to slide their way away from doing that, then people will be like, all right, well, this guy over here is going to do it. So now we're going to send out another vote and say, like, go hit the road, Jack. And then, you know, if yeah. everybody validates that, then that ambassador is therefore, like, given out. So I don't see them as being a single person, each of those keys. I see them as kind of going in. There's probably going to be, as it grows, there's going to be, like, you know, a hundred different keys that catch a vote for each ambassador key. And it's going to grow in like kind of groups so that it becomes organizations and groups of people, communities doing those different things, you know, like the Peace Corps. What if the Peace Corps had deposits from Bitcoin that could help them solve some of these issues for people? What if, you know, there was, you know, deposits from Bitcoin to help people develop alternative energy technology and start putting more solar out and be able to give people a reduced cost of that so that they don't have to be as reliant on power systems. So that's kind of, in a sense, how it is. Like, I mean, I don't like the word foundation because I believe that word's been overused. And in my opinion, it sometimes designates a little bit of corruption. Now, I'm not going to say that speaks for all of them, but I've seen that in a lot of alternative currencies. So there's the Aurora Coin Foundation, or there is this foundation. And I think a decentralized trust fund is probably the most appropriate way to be able to kind of give the benefit of producing this mint for purposes that are going to improve the world. Yes. Okay. Well, like I said, I could uh, ask you 10 million more questions, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it goes on for a while. You've been doing yeah. really I, I apologize if I'm getting too technical. That's that's one of my challenges that I have is translating everything into a a more, how should I say, a layman's perspective. But, yeah, there's, mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot of technology and things have gone into it, so it's uh, pretty fun to be a part of it, especially being able to... Uh, you know, help create it and provide that space for people to kind of free themselves and find a better way to live and be decentralized and not have to worry about these flaws in the world and not see these problems but now have solutions for them so that we can all just live the life of freedom that we all deserve. Yeah, very good. Well, Colin, I appreciate your time. It's been a really great interview, and I'm looking forward maybe in a few months to uh, to doing another one and seeing the progress with Nexus. But uh, Definitely. amazing yeah, stuff well, you're working on. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad that you took the time to do this interview, too. It's really good to, uh, to where I'm, like I said, it's good to have, you know, the interview questions that helps me kind of extract some of this information out of my head because I've done so much sometimes I forget everything I've done. <laughs> you have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, 
virtual reality, and more.